So Hebrews 5. Um, last week, when we were dealing with um, the end of chapter 4, we saw how at the end of chapter 4, the, uh, the statement of Jesus being the high priest uh, was something that really led us into this whole new section, that he is one who has passed through the heavens and he now is there to be our high priest. We're going to see in this whole main section of Hebrews that Jesus has a superior priesthood to the one of the old covenant. He has a better position, he's a better priest, he has a better covenant, there is a better sanctuary, and there is a better sacrifice. And so all of those things we'll see as we go through. And we really kick off this whole section today with the comparison of the old priesthood and the new priesthood in chapter 5. The first four verses that we're going to see, um, these first four verses are looking at the the priest under the old covenant, and then when we get through uh, to verses 5 through 10, we see how Jesus compares to that old covenant system. And I make no promises that we're going to get to verse 5 today. We may or we may not. But we'll start off with the first four verses where we look at this old system. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And there we have a pretty good summary of the ministry of the high priest under the old covenant. We're going to see here in these verses that there were four prerequisites. There were four things that the high priest had to be to qualify to be high priest. There's four of them. And we're going to see a couple here in this verse. Firstly, every high priest is chosen from among men. The high priest, to be a high priest, had to be human. No angel could have ever been high priest, and God in, in, him, in and of himself couldn't have been high priest. It was a man who had to be high priest, because a man was, as we see here, chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And as we've already said, the high priest is the one who is bridging this gap between God and man. And so he needs to be a man to be able to relate to mankind and to be able to present these gifts, which we'll talk about in a moment, to God. And so the high priest has to be human. And we've already seen, as we've been through this, the uh, relevance and the importance of the incarnation of Jesus and that in becoming man, he was able to die, but more so, in becoming man, he was able to become our high priest and our sympathizer. Notice here as well, he's chosen from among men, and he's chosen on behalf of men. It's the same with all gifts. I keep repeating this and emphasizing this, but each one of us who are Christians today, unlike in the Old Covenant, we, are, um, we have the Holy Spirit within us, and the Holy Spirit, who, who indwells us, He gives us gifts. Everybody has at least one gift, and nobody has all the gifts, because there is this interrelated dependency that we have one upon another. 
But all of these gifts have one thing in common, and that is they're not for us. Or more accurately to you as individuals, they're not for you. If you have a gift, your gift is not for your blessing, nor for your benefit. In fact, often with people with their gifts, though they are blessed by exercising them, and that often happens, other times they're not blessed by exercising them. The reality is, is that the reason that you have the gifts that you have are not for you, but for those around you. And it's something that it, we, we can't say too much, because we need to understand, you know, and I'm, I this is why I started my ministry here in the book of Ephesians, and I keep coming back to it. Ephesians 4, the way that we as a church grow, not numerically, but in maturity, the way that we are conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And we all want to be there, right? We want to evermore be sanctified and conformed. That is a group activity. It's not something that we can go off to a retreat center and, and become a monk and do by ourselves for a few decades. It, it's something that happens corporately where we exercise the gifts one to another. You need my gift and I need your gifts. We all need the gifts of one another. And that's how we mature. So this is why I take the opportunity to keep reminding us. And in a similar way, the ministry of the high priest was one that was given as a gift to other people. He was ministering on behalf of other people. The gifts of God have always been that way. The appointments of God have always been that way. And ultimately that sees its, uh, its uh, fruition, its totality in the appointing of Christ to his ministry and how he gave himself fully for others without thinking of himself or his own regard. So the high priest had to be human. He's a chosen from among men, appointed to act on behalf of men in this relationship with God. And notice here at the end of the verse, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. I'm sure many of you would love for me at this point to take time out and to go through a very in-depth study of the book of Leviticus. But for those of you who don't, we will take it as granted that there were sacrifices that had to be made for sin, that we understand that. The gifts that are being referred to here earlier, gifts and sacrifices, as well as the blood sacrifices that we tend to focus on. There were additional offerings as well, meal offerings, for example, and these, this is what those, uh, the gifts here are referring to. And so the high priest in his duties would uh, make the offerings and the gifts uh, that he would do specifically that were required for him under the old covenant law and as part of the Levitical priesthood. Now this is really important. This is our second prerequisite. The high priest had to be human, but he had to be part of a priestly order. Now here, the gifts and sacrifices are part of the Levitical sacrifices. Levitical sacrifices, the book of Leviticus, it makes this easy for us, doesn't it? But they were all descendants of Aaron. They were descendants of Aaron, and we'll talk a little bit about him in a moment. And these, this system where the tribe of Levi were put aside, 
they were the ones who were the priests, and the sons of Aaron were the high priests, and they would fulfill this role. It was all part of this priestly order. Now, at the end of this passage, we're going to come to a lesser-known priestly order, the one of Melchizedek. And I know you're all chomping at the bits, and you all want to hear about Melchizedek. And we will get there in due course. But we need to understand that the gifts and the sacrifices were there because there was a priestly order, the Levitical priestly order, that worked on the basis of a system of rules or laws. That's the old Mosaic covenant. So Moses, the leader, he was given the covenant and the rules, and it was exercised through Aaron and his descendants under the Levitical system. And that was what was in place. And it was there for sins. Now, we know that the method of dealing with sins was insufficient, ultimately. That no person was going to have uh, an animal killed, and that somehow that would give them access to heaven. What it did was it basically kept them okay until the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ, could be made. I just want to make that point. I think it's a misunderstanding that some people have. That in the New Testament, we're saved by the blood of Christ, but in the Old Testament, they were saved by animal blood. No, they weren't. It was a temporary appeasing of God's wrath that was awaiting the fulfillment of the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ. As Paul points out in Romans and elsewhere, every single one of the people of the Old Testament who were saved was saved by faith and not by works. That was always the way. And ultimately, their path to heaven was paved by the blood of Christ. And we can talk more about that. I'm sure we will as we go through Hebrews in more detail. Um, but I just want us to be clear on that as we make that point. So, there are sacrifices for their sins. It will appease God's wrath. It will grant them a forgiveness, a temporary stay, as it were. But it was necessary to deal with their sins. And of course, we see here as well how the system for dealing with sin is a foreshadowing of the system that is to come under a different priesthood, under a different covenant. Verse 2. He, this is the high priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Here is our third qualification of a high priest. The high priest has to be one who is compassionate and I know we use the word sympathy a lot in the biblical text, but I think a probably more accurate word would be one of empathy empathy. And so the high priest, because he shares in our weakness, is able to deal with us gently. He's able to treat us kindly and moderately. Here this word gently implies a the word moderate I think is an important word. It's dealing with an avoiding of extremes. On the one hand, there is a lack of apathy. The high priest truly cares. He empathizes. He understands. He comes alongside. But at the same point, there is also not a, a, a bowing to excessive emotion. There is not a sense in which um, 
There is no requirement on a person uh, simply because they're upset. There is this place of empathy, understanding the weakness of man, but also understanding the holiness of God. But because of that weakness, he can empathize. Because of that weakness, he understands. And he can deal because he himself is beset with weakness. This is something that every single high priest had until the last one. Every single high priest had to deal with the issue of sin, his own sin. And obviously, as we'll see as we go through this next few chapters, the difference in Christ is, of course, that he was without sin. But hey, even Aaron, Aaron the first high priest will be keep referring to him, verse 4 mentions him by name. Aaron was singled out in Exodus 16, and by Exodus 28, verse 1, he's called to be the high priest. That's Exodus 28. By the time we've gone four chapters further on, we're in Exodus 32, and Aaron has been part of making the golden calf. Way to go, high priest! That's called failure on an epic scale. His excuse was, um, <laughs> was pretty laughable as well. It was like, they just gave me their gold and I put it in and this, just, this cow came out. I mean, I don't know, I don't know how this happened. He, he was uh, amazing there. And, and what is interesting is this, is that when there had to be atonement for the sin of the golden calf, Aaron, the high priest, didn't make it. Moses had to step in and make it. Because Aaron was willfully involved in that sin. That brings us back to that previous phrase here in this verse, where he says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. That's a nice expression, isn't it? You know? Maybe you should have that on your tagline on social media. You know? Husband, father, pastor, ignorant and wayward. That would be mine. You know, you, you could tag it onto yours as well. That's a nice description. There's some debate here, by the way, in, in, uh, in sort of scholarly circles as to whether it's saying two separate things, ignorant and wayward, or whether it's sometimes these words are brought together in combination to, to communicate one point in which it would be people who um, go astray through their ignorance. And the reason there's some debate here is because, like Aaron, when you willfully rebel against God, you put yourself outside. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But um, he had to certainly make sacrifice for his sins first because he was ignorant and wayward as well. I'm glad that high priests, until Christ were ignorant and wayward. I'm glad that all pastors have been ignorant and wayward. And I guess you're glad that everybody else has been ignorant and wayward as well because there is a provision for the ignorant and wayward in the sacrifice on the cross. So in Leviticus 16, there was a bullock that was slaughtered as a sacrifice for the sins of Aaron. And then the other his sons and the high priests following on. There was a, a bullock that was sacrificed and 
that had to be done as a sacrifice for his sins before he could then go on the Day of Atonement and make sacrifice for the sins of the people. And so he and his failings had to have his sin dealt with so that he could then represent them and represent them on, behalf, on their behalf before God and make a sacrifice for the people. The difference there, obviously, with Christ will be dealt with more and more as the chapters go by. But that was his weakness and that was his need, and therefore there was a sacrifice for his sin. Verse 3, because of this he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for the people. And so that sacrifice had to be made first. In verse 4, we see the fourth requirement for the high priest, We've seen it already in verse 1 with the word chosen, but it's emphasized more strongly here. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. You know, a lot of people in this day and age struggle with the concept, the very concept of election. And even if you put aside issues of salvation, election is everywhere in the Bible. God says, I'm having you, you can do this, you're going to do that, I want you for this, I'll have this nation, this people, I'll do this this way, I'll do this this way. God is sovereign. He does as he wills. And he chose the high priest. I've already made reference to um, Exodus 28, where Aaron was called, and Aaron was given the job of high priest. And there were other times when other people had to step in, like Moses in Exodus 32. But on each occasion, God said, God decided, God made the decision. And when God appoints, you don't want to mess with that. Let's turn briefly, um, let's turn briefly to Numbers 15. Numbers 15. I think it's good, I want to just skim through a little bit about, uh, from Numbers for a few chapters, just to kind of get a feel for this whole kind of concept that we're dealing with. And uh, so Numbers 15, let's pick up in... I mean, Numbers 15 is all about the sacrifices that have to be made. I just want to pick up in verse 30. Or let's read from verse 29. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, reviles Yahweh, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of Yahweh and has broken his commandments, and that person shall utterly be cut off, his iniquity shall be on him. And that's why I said about the difference between unintentional and willful. Now, obviously, this is Old Covenant, this is not new covenant. I'm certainly not preaching a message to you. If you've rebelled against God, that's that. 
And some people, ironically, use Hebrews to do that, and it's not the case at all. But I do want us to see really carefully that we as humans constantly mess up. We, are, we have sin, Paul says, in our flesh. You want to make that 21st century science? Your DNA is hardwired to sins. Our sins may be different, we may be hardwired to different sins, but we're all going to sin. We're going to stumble, we're going to mess up, we're going to fail. But there is something different which is when we look God in the eye and he says don't and we say yes. When, when we look God in the eye and he says do this and we say no. Th that's a very different scenario. We muck up every day. We make mistakes, we stumble. You know, I think of the book of Job and how he would make sacrifice. This is even before the old covenant. He would make sacrifice for his children just in case when they were out having a good time with their friends, they unintentionally did something wrong. And the sacrificial system was there for that. But if somebody said, you know what, God? I don't care what you say. The sacrificial system didn't have their back in that situation. And it's funny when you have that in chapter 15 that you just go a little bit further into chapter 16 and this is kind of where I wanted us to be. You have the story of Korah. Poor Korah. This is not a nice thing to be remembered for for all eternity but this is what happened in chapter 16. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, I should have practiced these beforehand, shouldn't I? I didn't as you'll notice in a moment. He's the son of lots of people anyway. He, uh, they, uh, he took men, verse 1, and they rose up before Moses, these men that he's taken, with a number of the, the people of Israel. 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. So basically Korah has a little band of people who get together with him, and then from the congregation, he gets 250 congregational chiefs. So leaders of little groups within it. And by the way, I think sometimes, you know, particularly if you grow up watching too many, too many episodes of Veggie Tales, you get the idea of people wandering, the Israelites wandering through the wilderness, and there's maybe, you know, a few hundred of them hanging around together. Makes it easy for shooting the movie, you know, as it were. There was at a minimum hundreds of thousands of people. This is an entire nation of people walking through the wilderness. And so they were put into camps and groups. And there are 250 people who have responsibility of leadership over particular congregational groups who have been brought together into this rebellion of Korah. They assembled themselves together, verse um, 3, against... Um, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. That's crucial for our text here. Aaron the high priest, Moses the leader, Aaron the high priest. And said to them, to those two, you've gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. And Yahweh is among them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of God? In other words, look. God's here, he dwells amongst us, he's here in our midst. We're the people of God. 
We're not the Philistines or the, you know, the Canaanites. We're the Israelites. We're God's people. We're set apart. We're holy. That's what holy means in its, in its raw meaning. It means set apart from the rest. We, we have the law. We're circumcised. We're not like them. We're separate. We're set apart. We're holy. And what's, what's special about you two? Moses and Aaron. What makes you special? Why should we do what you say? We're Israelites, you're Israelites, we have the law, you know. What, 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 why do you get to do this? Who do you think you are? Well, the answer is, this is who they are. They're people that God appointed to a specific task. And so Moses, when he heard this, he didn't say, Oi, you're picking a fight with me? This is my job, you're not taking my job. None of that. Moses is not interested in that, that engagement, that type of argument, that way of thinking at all. Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Because he knows that they are not rebelling against him, but they're rebelling against God who put them in their position. And so, Moses heard it, he fell on his face, he said to Korah and all his company, in the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him and the one he chooses will bring, uh, will bring near to him. And so he gathers the groups together and, uh, and it's interesting as he does this, do this, take census, Korah and his company, put fire in them, put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom Yahweh chooses will be the Holy One. You've gone too far, sons of Levi. The, the reference here to incense and fire is that the lighting of the incense was a job that was reserved for the high priest. Okay, so Aaron, anyone can do Aaron's job? Okay, we'll get Aaron to do his job, and then you do Aaron's job. Let's see what happens. And so it was. And Moses said, Here now, sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the Lord, the God of Israel, has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle, to stand before the congregation and to minister to them, and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers and the sons of Levi with you? Would you seek the priesthood also? In other words, you guys, you're already in the tribe of Levi. You're separate from all the other tribes. You're the holy tribe. You know, we're holy, we're holy too. Why Aaron? We're holy. They are, they're separate. They're separate not just from the other nations, they're separate from the other tribes. You've been given such a privileged position. Why is it that you always want more? Why can't you be happy with what you have? And so they grumble against Aaron. They desire the priesthood for themselves. And he goes on, verse 12, Moses sent to call to, uh, to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of El Eliab, and they say, we will not come up. So he said, he's called them to come. No, we're not going to come up. It's a small thing that you brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you must also make yourself a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us inheritance of fields or vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We're not going to come up. Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them and I have not harmed one of them. 
And here's the thing. Notice the dynamics going on here. You have made yourself prince. Wrong. Moses didn't. God gave him that position. And if you remember the calling of Moses, against Moses' will. Don't send me. I can't do this. I can't speak. I don't want to do this. Nope. You're the one. I'm having you. I'm going to send you. I'm going to give you the words. Aaron can go with you. So they misunderstood the, why Moses has the position he has. But notice, it's as if Moses is coming alongside some of these people and saying, look, you know, you guys know me. You're part of this thing. Come up. Come and support me. No, no, no. We've chosen our side. And so they've chosen their side. And the results, many of you know them well. And so what happens is, um, I want to keep moving because I don't want to run out of time, but Moses says, present you in the, the company uh, before the Lord, you and they, and Aaron tomorrow. Let everyone take a censer, put incense on it. Everyone you uh, bring before Yahweh his censer, 250 of them. You also and Aaron each. So each man took his censer and put fire on them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Tent of meeting, that's where the presence of God turned up to meet with Aaron and Moses. You want to have the job of relating to God on the behalf of the people? You want to do that? Come. Come, let's go to where God is and let's do the high priest thing together. Then... Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the tent of meeting. Notice that, that's crucial. Korah assembles the whole of the group of people. The rebellion is now starting to take effect. There's this core group of people, and now the masses are following. And they come to the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh appeared. The glory of Yahweh appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and said, separate yourselves from this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. They've chosen rebellion. You and Aaron go away. The rest of them, boom. That's how seriously God takes it. And they fell on their faces and said, oh God, oh God, of all the spirits of the flesh shall one man sin and you'll be angry with the whole congregation. You know where that's going, don't you? One man sins, Korah, everybody is affected, everyone's wiped out. What's going to happen under the new covenant? One man's going to not sin, and he's going to make them all holy. I like that little verse, I like that little, that little hint there going forward. And so the Lord spoke to Moses and said, okay, say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So Moses went he rose, went to them, elders of it followed him, and he said, please depart from the tents of these wicked people and touch nothing of theirs, lest you, swept away, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives and sons and little ones. And Moses said, hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works that it is that it has not been of mine own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they're visited by the fate of all mankind, then Yahweh's not sent me. 
But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then you will know that these men have despised Yahweh. This is crucial. Crucial in understanding this. He gets these guys who are part of the rebellion. He says, you do not want to be here, guys. God is going to punish them. Come away and be separate. And he persuades them to come away. There's still Korah and the core rebellion. But those who've joined in, they, they, they've gone aside now. And he says, look, this is the proof of the pudding. If, if God doesn't punish them, then I, I was never appointed. This is, this is me. But if God punishes them, you will never doubt again that God chose me. It wasn't my will, it was his will. And as soon as he's finished speaking these words, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened up its mouth, swallowed them up with their households and the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods so that they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from in the midst of the assembly. Not finished yet. All Israel who were around them fled at their cries, said, lest the earth swallow us up. In other words, there were some who were part of the rebellion that weren't part of Korah's family specifically. And fire, verse 20, uh, 35, came out from Yahweh and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Those who tried to be high priests and offered fire to God were consumed by the fire of God. The rebellion was dealt with harshly. Why all of this? Why is this so relevant to our point? This is so relevant that we understand this because the point that the writer of Hebrews is making is nobody chooses what God has for them. None of us do. Your life was chosen before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 verse 4. And as Paul goes through that section of Ephesians, he goes through that entire section where you have been chosen, and he ends it in chapter 2 and verse 10, where having said that we're saved by, by faith and not by works, he says, however, we are saved for works that were prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. Christ, as we're going to see in the verses following next time, that he went through immense suffering so that he could be made perfect, awkward I know, but we'll deal with it next time, he could be made perfect, that he could be complete to be able to do what it is that God had for him. Do you think that your ministry is going to be any different from Moses, from Aaron, from Jesus? You want to be his disciple? deny yourself, take up your own cross and follow him. That's your journey too. That's why Paul says to Timothy that everybody who seeks to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Suffering is part of our life. The concept that some churches teach that you can have your best life now is heretical and an aberration to the gospel. This life is a road that is hard, that is troublesome, that is difficult, that is constantly surrounded with sin and suffering and hardship and trials. Because God has a plan for you. And all of these things and all of these circumstances are there for you. For your job and your role. Don't seek the role of anybody else. 
Oh, I wish I could do that like he does it. I wish I could do that like they do it. I wish I had their situation. I wish I had their, their, their uh, health or their finances or their this or their that. You don't. You're you. You're not part of some random cosmic accident. You're not, you're not sort of, you know, oh, well, you just ended up this way. and you. Your life is in God's hands. He has chosen you like he chooses the high priest. He said before the foundation of the world, I'm going to have you and I'm going to save you. I'm going to place my Holy Spirit within you because the Spirit is going to enable you to do something that only you can do. That is your job and your job alone. Does that not excite you? Your life has so much purpose. Every trial, every difficulty, every weakness, every tendency that you have to sin, every part of your existence, everything that you've been through, that you will go through, every gift and everything is there for God to do his work through you. Why number 16? Don't seek anybody else's life or position. You have yours. Embrace it. Embrace the trials. Embrace the difficulties. Embrace everything. You know, at the end of that passage of, um, in, in uh, Numbers 16, he says, hey, if the ground opens up, if it swallows them all, then you'll know that these men have despised Yahweh. Seeking somebody else's life, somebody else's gift, somebody else's position is a despising of Yahweh. It's saying, I don't care that you called me and you asked me to do this and you gave me this gift and you, you made this my life. I don't want this life. I want that life, that situation. You see the, the fruit of Paul saying in Philippians how he'd been learned to be content in all circumstances and riches and poverty. Because there is this tendency that we have to, um, to seek something else. The grass is always greener. Oh, wasn't it better when we were in Egypt? We got good meals in Egypt, none of this, this lousy manna. We always think that the grass is greener on the other side. But you've got a purpose. God needs you. He wants you. He's chosen you. You're empowered. And hear this out. You're empowered by the same Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is within you. That's why when Paul has said, hey, you've got every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, he ends that section by praying for them. And, and, and it's an intriguing prayer, as we said on Tuesday night this week, it's an intriguing prayer, because when you've just said, hey, you've got every spiritual blessing, what are you going to pray for? It's like having somebody who's a multimillionaire, and you're thinking, well, what am I going to get them for Christmas? They've got everything that they want. And this is what Paul said. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be open. He prays for understanding, for knowledge, for insight, for three specific areas. For the hope that is to come. 
your best life then. He prays that we would understand the riches that have been given to us in Christ. Sons of Levi, you've already had so much. Why aren't you happy? Why do you want what Aaron has? Don't you know how much you've been given already? How blessed you are? That you would know the riches that you have. And thirdly, that you would know the power within you. So whatever excuse is in your head right now, Whatever it is that you are thinking, well, I'm not special, I can't do this, I'm never going to amount to anything, God's not going to use me like he uses somebody else, just cut it out. It's not about you. You suck. Yeah, I get it. I suck too. We all suck. Hey, let's have a great big sucky party. We're, we're all in the same boat. But we all have the same Holy Spirit. That's how the Apostle Paul went from killing Christians to being the greatest of the apostles. That's how Moses goes from being a murderer to being a shepherd of God's people. It's not because Moses was just this, ah, oh, God says, I'm so glad I found this Moses guy. I don't know where he came from, but man, he's just great. God made you. You're wonderfully and fearfully made. And you, you have God's spirit within you if you're a believer and so serve him. Serve him where you're called to serve him with the gifts that you've been given in the circumstances that you're in and be satisfied with that and pursue that. Because I think that to do otherwise is to despise the Lord. The second thing and the final thing that comes from this text as well as this lesson of God appointing people for positions and how that applies to us all. The second main application from this is that the high priest specifically was appointed. Now, if you're worried that at this point, number 16 has been the pastor shooting across the bowels and saying, I'm the pastor. That's not what we're doing here. The high priest is not the equivalent of the pastor. The high priest is Jesus Christ. That's the bottom line here. Okay? So when we come from application from something very specific to us as Christians, let's now take the application to those outside the church. Those outside the church will often say things, well, I believe in God. I'm a spiritual person. I, I, I like God. I, I, you know, I was raised in church. All of these kind of spiritually kind of terminology and, and expressions. You know, and it's not a perfect analogy, but you, know, you, you often hear people say, you know, um, you know I, I have a garage, it doesn't make me a car. I, you know, I've been to McDonald's, it doesn't make me a burger. You know, and I, you know, they're not perfect illustrations, but I get the point. You know, just because you're at church doesn't mean that you're a Christian. I, I understand that. There's, there's a point here that is really crucial that we get. That God has said, there is... An appointment I'm making. There's a decision I'm making. I am making Jesus Christ, high priest, to relate between God and man, to appease for sins. I'm making him my high priest, and that is how it's going to be. Now, keep number 16, Korah, ground swallowing up, rebellion. Keep that in your mind. God has said, this is how I will deal with mankind, how I relate with mankind. 
Your friend who kind of likes God. Your friend who is spiritual. Your friend who occasionally reads the Bible. None of it means anything. You don't get to heaven by being spiritual or good or by being a theist and believing in God. There is one way to heaven, Jesus Christ. That's it. Over, finished, done. That's it. God says, this is my way. This is how I'm doing it. And you think that you've got a better way? You think that your idea is okay? Hey, why Jesus? Why Aaron? Why Moses? I like this way to God. I like a little bit of Buddhism thrown in. Let's just put a little bit of, a little sprinkle of Hinduism here and there. Let's kind of like, let's, let's, let's make it a little bit less like this, because we don't like that, a little bit more like this. Let's make some adjustments here and there to this whole Christian thing. The ground will swallow you up. And in the same way that Moses said, hey guys, you've got to separate yourself from these people. Separate yourself away and watch what happens. We don't get the privilege of seeing it in advance in this life. That's the sad thing. But if people will set themselves apart from the rebellion, the rejection of God's appointed one, if they'll set them apart from that, then they won't be there when everybody else receives the judgment of God. This is serious stuff, folks. The gospel of Jesus Christ, trusting in him and in him alone to appease for our sins, to represent us before God and for us to be made acceptable before a holy God. That gospel of Christ, our trust in him, that is it. That is the only thing, that is all we have, that is everything. There is no plan B, there is no backup plan. All our eggs have to be in that one basket. You want a bit of Jesus with a bit of Buddha thrown in? You want a bit of Jesus with a little bit of kind of mumbo-jumbo, new-agey stuff? You go make your little recipes, but the ground will swallow you up, spiritually speaking. He is God's appointed one, and God will deal with people his way. And anything else is not acceptable and it is a despising of God. And you are God's appointed one as well in Christ. Not because you're great, not because you're wonderful, not because you're worthy, because you're none of those things. But in his wisdom, so that he will be glorified by using people as dumb and as messed up as we are, he has chosen us empowered us with his spirit. And just like we accepted his decision, Christ alone, let us accept his other decisions. You, this life, this purpose, this walk. Let us not stand up against the face of God and say, I don't want this. I won't go that way. Let our lives be a humble submission before him. Always, in every way. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that you appointed Christ to be our great high priest. 
that you chose him, that you gave him that role, and that it is the only way to you. And Lord, we thank you that you chose us to be in Christ and to be saved. Lord, we know that that means you have work for us to do and that you've empowered us to do it. So Lord, may we put aside our rebellion. May we put aside our ignorance and may we wholeheartedly pursue you. May our eyes be opened and may we know the hope of our calling, the glorious riches that we have in you. And may we know this power that you have given us by placing your spirit within us. That we might walk in a manner that is worthy of you and that we might accomplish your will so that you may be glorified and that we may be conformed into the image of your Son. In whose name we pray. Amen.